This is Outspoken, the podcast of the Lawrence DeGroff Center for Oral and Public History at California State University, Fullerton. I'm your host, Benjamin Cothrop. Here at Outspoken, we discuss projects from students, faculty, and the local community that incorporate public history. And because we believe there's no substitute for people telling their stories, Natalie Garcia, the center's archivist, will play some interview clips later on in the episode in our Out of the Archives segment. How to envision a new, more just society. What is the power of the photograph to help that happen? Dorothea Lange's photographs are the subject of a new exhibition at the Great Park Gallery in Irvine. Dorothea Lange's California, 1935 to 1942, runs from October 1st to December 31st, 2023. It features dozens of Lange's photographs made in California during the Depression and World War II. My visual history class from fall 2022 made significant contributions to this show. They learned about using images as historical evidence. They read several volumes on Dorothea Lang, did research in the Library of Congress and National Archives holdings of Lang's government work. Three of those graduate students in history are here to share their experience of working on the exhibition and what they think is significant about Lang's photography. We have Natalie Vandercook, who served as assistant curator for the show, Angelica Smith, and Kayla Ratliff. Welcome to you all. It's Outspoken. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Just by way of getting to know the three of you better, maybe you could tell us how you got interested in studying history in the first place. And not just interested, but you're all graduate students, which is taking it a bit far, don't you think? Yeah. Um, Tell us, uh, Natalie and Angelica and Kayla, how you came to this. Um, I've always been really interested in history and museums. I think even as a little kid, I was the one who suckered my poor mom into having to stay behind in exhibits while I would read every didactic and panel. And so um, I always really enjoyed it. So history was kind of the go-to option. And then um, I want to work in collections management and would love to one day curate exhibits, so I wanted to pursue and go into the public history master's program. I kind of have the same route where I like to go to museums, I was asking questions, always asking my mom everything that she would just take me to a museum or put me in front of a book and she'd say like, figure it out. Um, I actually wasn't going to be a history major, I wanted to do nursing, um, but I switched back because I was a lot happier and I felt a lot more successful in what I did. Um, and then going to graduate school, it just felt right after um, studying it for so long that I didn't want to give it up. And I don't plan on it. <laughs> Glad you didn't. Kayla? Yeah, similar. I grew up always just wanting to learn about history. I would like want to watch the History Channel all the time that was on TV. For some reason, my parents had some encyclopedias that I would just look at, I guess. It's kind of strange. Um, so I just knew I wanted to study history going to college. I enjoyed it. Wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I'm like, well, I like learning history. I might as well continue. <laughs> That's what I'm doing. Hopefully, I like to use like what I'm learning, hopefully, to make a difference somewhere. So here I am. <laughs> It sounds like there was no hope for any of you. No, we're, we're <laughs> destined. Um, that's, that's great. I love learning about how you, how you got interested in all of this. Did, did any of you have any background working with images, uh, thinking about interpreting images? Sometimes students have taken some art history or they've done some other work, but was this a new thing for you in, the, in this class? Uh, it was new for me. I think I used a few images in my undergrad, um, maybe more for the impact of what I was studying, like maybe for my own personal interpretations, never for my like research goals. Um, but because I started getting an interest in the public history, I knew that images would be um, pretty crucial to what I want to exhibit. So this was my first time and uh, it's really, it's the best part, honestly. I've done a little bit using images during my undergraduate career. Like if I had to, I had to write an essay. I brought in images and whatnot. 
but I feel like this was the first time I thought about kind of similarly more the impact of it where before just analyzing versus like oh this is the purpose what it did for the public and everything um I had a similar route where I have done more of the artistic side of why you would mm -hmm. display these images and whatnot in the order and why that's important in exec exhibition design, but I hadn't really gotten into the historical context of it and to how to really analyze a photo as evidence. And we spent a lot of time with that, uh, <laughs> read a lot of books, and, and you, but you got a chance to, to do some research and, and actually apply what you were learning. What were some takeaways from that class that, that stick with you? Long, long pause. <laughs> <laughs> For me, it kind of ties into the idea of almost like, well, not one was like propaganda, depending on like how the photo was being used and the purpose of it, where like I knew about like photos being important, how, but I didn't think so much about how we're such a visual society. I'm like, oh my God, these photos can be used for basically good and bad things. And I think that's what I got out of it the most. And you ended up using that as part of your master, your master's exam, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, that was fine. Well, yeah, that was actually pretty fun to write about. <laughs> yeah. I think one of my biggest takeaways was how images can be interpreted. Like, I remember sitting next to another group who had an image that I was going to use, and we both talked about it, and we kind of had, like, a conversation on, like, where the image would fit better. And I ended up having to, you know, put it into their... Um, part of the project and I just liked how interactive that conversation had to be about like what the image meant especially to the overall big idea yeah I think similar for what the image meant I really enjoyed learning how to kind of question photos mm -hmm. for learn all the background information it can seem simple from a first glance but there's so much more you can learn from a single image so I really liked that. Yeah. The deception of photography is that it represents, it's a one-to-one -one representation of the world, right? Mm -hmm. But instead we learn that it's mediated, it's edited, it's taken for particular purposes. Mm -hmm. Do people see it? Where do they see it first, right? That makes a difference um, in interpreting it and understanding what to do with it mm -hmm. as historians. Um, I wondered... That, that brings us to Dorothea Lang, who clearly had an idea about what photography could be mm -hmm. and ended up working for the government, which also had ideas about what <laughs> photography could be. And sometimes their ideas were not in alignment, we learned, right? So what did you know about Dorothea Lang uh, beforehand, Natalie, and, and what did you learn about her working on this project? Uh, I think at most I just knew her for her migrant mother photos and that she took photos for or during the Great Depression um, and that was generally it for beforehand but and then sorry what was the second and what do you know about her now that you didn't know then um, for now we've learned a lot more about her even as a person and even though I think it's interesting she didn't consider herself an artist how the artistic depth she has in her photos and the humanity she puts into them I thought that was really neat to learn about I feel like it was very um relatable because like she didn't think of herself as an artist but we think of her as one and we don't think of ourselves as grad like grad students or historians <laughs> but we are them um i guess i'd like to add on to that that i what i learned that the government hired photographers to go out and photograph and i think that's interesting that it i feel like you never know about these like direct points of from government to the people. And it's interesting to see that, especially um, like her and her work. Um, what, I feel like that's it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I know what you mean. It's like, I feel like I should have known like the government would might be involved in some photos and everything. It's like, oh, why didn't I think that there might be censorship and everything? So I think that was interesting to learn about too. Yeah, I think the censorship helped us learn about, um, I guess from my section specifically, where um, I think in my section we talked about the myth of the pioneer mm. and how like she kind of 
strayed from that direction that the government seemed to, you know, push for. And instead, she showed um, how women navigated, like, this environmental crisis. Yeah, let's hear more about the sections you worked on. Um, first, before we get to the, the the actual content of the sections, what was it like doing the research in these vast online archives at the Library of Congress and the National Archives? It's great that they're there, but there's a lot of material there. What was that like doing that kind of research? For me, at first, it was a little overwhelming since like this was my first time actually looking through archives like that. I was like, oh my gosh, am I going to do this right? Am I going to find good <laughs> photos and everything? But then like once you're actually looking through it, it's pretty cool. I'm like, oh wow, these are like legit photos I get to look at for, from the past. And like this is what got passed through and what the public is seeing. So it was overall overwhelming, but then you start working with it and it's pretty interesting. I think it was my favorite part. I think I'm definitely like an archive troll (laughs) like I love being in there and I like spending hours and every time I have to make an appointment for like an archive I usually like scrap my day because like (laughs) I know that's what I want to do I'm gonna have so many ideas and um I have like notebooks filled with like my little notes and I really enjoyed that this was accessible um that it was online that I didn't have to go anywhere I was in the comfort of my home looking um I really enjoyed that part, and then I enjoyed the secondary sources. I I don't know if you want to get rid of that part, but Linda Gordon. <laughs> no, our you, you had an argument with Linda Gordon. You I, did. I beefed it with her all <laughs> semester. That's so funny. <laughs> but I think her work was really crucial to my understanding of Dorothy Lang, and and so I feel like using her and then going into the archives really like aided me in in expressing like I think I I think I really enjoyed the out like I'm really proud of that this project and I think that um my section I came to like love because of what I scrutinized and then what I was like reading and then the images coming together and I think it was just nice. Natalie, you became an intern after the class ended, so you kept on working with yes. the images, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. So what was that like? I think it was really interesting to kind of overall see the flow of the project for where it started out in these almost segregated little groups, and then the pictures all came together and see how they kind of talked with each other, and at the end, putting it all together in a whole nother layer. And for the previous question about what it was like, I agree that it was a bit <laughs> overwhelming because sometimes I felt like, well, if I just go a couple more pages, maybe I'll find the perfect picture. Oh, what if I miss one that could have represented this theme better? And so I spent so much time going through those photos where I have an Excel sheet somewhere that's hundreds long. <laughs> but uh, it was really neat to see it all go together and help it kind of flow better. But the editing process, is, it's not always the most fun cutting it down, but it definitely needs it in the end. Yeah, if it's not going to fit on the wall, it's not going to fit, right? So we have to make those hard curatorial choices. Um, Tell us about the sections that that you all worked on that grew as you completed research and worked with your groups and put this together. I I believe, Natalie, you worked on the Farm Security Administration itself. This is the agency that employed Dorothy Lang and, and these other photographers. Yeah, so for the first FSA section, it's really the introduction to the whole exhibit. So we wanted to make sure that anyone who comes in would get a good understanding of what they're walking into, because a lot of people probably don't know what the FSA was or what it did. And it offered so many different opportunities and programs and assistance that we wanted to make it clear so that the rest of the exhibit would be better understood. But again, there was a lot that they did, so it's still... It was a bit hard to narrow it down, but I was happy with how it ended up being. We included a timeline, too, to kind of put it all in historical context. Do you think the FSA was propaganda? Well, I think it certainly is on some (laughs) levels. (laughs) Because while it was aid, it was targeted at specific groups. It was only available to some or more accessible to some than others. So there were levels of propaganda, not 100% one way or another, but... 
And it's the government doing it. Yes, right? and especially when talking about the photos, and we mentioned earlier the censorship, that <laughs> really speaks more to the propaganda. And I think especially with some of the later sections with the Japanese-American internment, you could quite, it was quite literally propaganda in the fullest form. Yeah, and even in the Great Depression, the government wants these photographs to go to newspapers, to magazines, right? They'd be free of charge. Um, to, I guess, create a narrative, create a message about what the government is doing to deal with the depression, what the options are for people who have, who are suffering. Um, it's an interesting project, the idea that, that you could create these artistic photographs and that those would help you get the word out about government resettlement programs, say. So um, it's, it's really fascinating. Angelica, your section was interesting, too. Tell us about that. Um, my section was amazing. <laughs> I loved it. My section focused on women at the Dust Bowl and how they kind of navigated the scene. And these, image, these images, like, struck me. And they, I, you know, I never thought about, like, them in, t in terms of propaganda, but now that I'm talking it out, I think I, like, see them, and I'm like, how would these images have been used? Um, I had mentioned before that the meaning of the images for the government were supposed to be like the myth of the pioneer and how, you know, the great migration to California, but Dorothea Lange decides to highlight how women navigated this issue. And I think about these women and I think if they saw themselves in, um, in like a magazine or a newspaper that they would just be like offended, that they would be like, like, how dare you, um, like, picture this when, like, or call me, like, a strong person when they're, like, they're, to them, it's like, they're just doing what they had to, to survive. Um, but this, that section, like, really, I feel like really spoke to that, and I think the feeling really encapsulates that. Um, and then the, I had a second part, too, which included Migrant Mother, um, one of my partners worked on that one and he we focused together on how on like who she was like you you know migrant mother um you know what she looks like but you don't know who she is and you find out like you just see like that image of her holding a child and i think there's another one that kind of hangs on her back and but the more i researched the more i found out she has like six other kids and you know, she is super young, too. I think she looks really aged, but she's, like, I think she's probably, like, my age or something. And so we kind of just focused on, like, that of making a home and being a mother and, like, kind of what that meant, especially for the time period of these people navigating, um, trying to find a home as, like, their previous one was desolated. And, yeah, and... and one of the things I remember you discussing and talking about was how do you or do you maintain sort of gender norms or expectations in the midst of crushing poverty when you've lost everything? Yeah, and a lot of these images, you know, showed women continuously keeping house. Like, you would see them sweeping dirt. Like, they're, they're camping pretty much, and they're sweeping these areas that they've decided to create as a home or they dress um, not to the nines, but they dress more adequate to what a woman should look like, I guess, at that time. Like, they're not in jeans and a t-shirt. They're still wearing their um, house dresses, their aprons, their shoes. They're brushing their hair. Um, actually, I would brush my hair in, <laughs> in that time. But Well, wouldn't you brush your hair, too, if you knew there was a, a, a box camera trained on you? Absolutely. I think I think some images, like um, the titles of images, were um, quotes from the subject. So I think I remember one where she was like, oh, give me a second to fix my hair. And she looks like a whole different person. <laughs> um, so I think it's like these images show like this reality but also like the makeupness of how they're just traveling yeah and the and we we have to always remember that the presence of the photographer changes the way the subject i mean we see this in our own social media world right yeah 
But it was just as true in the 30s, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, Kayla, what about your section? Um, so I worked on the Japanese-American incarceration section. That was particularly special to me since my grandfather was actually in a concentration camp. So it was, I guess, nice to sort of give back kind of thing. Um, that one was interesting because you don't really learn too much about it like growing up. Like I obviously knew about it because I knew my grandpa was part of it. So it's interesting to see these photos, especially because of the government censorship, since they're meant to look nicer. We're like, it's nice that like Dorothea Lang made them look humanized. That was the point. It was like subtle protests in that way, but because it's censored, you know, they're trying to show the government like, oh, these aren't bad. These camps and everything, but like juxtaposed with stories you might hear from your grandparents, like, well, it didn't seem like it was all that happy. So she was hired to go to Manzanar mm -hmm. and photograph it on behalf of the government mm -hmm. but I guess I guess she didn't do the job they were looking for quite yeah I think some people I forgot oh, which one of our secondary sources it might have been Gordon yeah <laughs> I know <laughs> although she did say one issue she felt was like you had to earn your citizenship through good behavior where it's like yeah it's good that you're humanizing them but it's like well you shouldn't they should just be treated properly and everything. So it's good that she tried to protest this way, like, hey, these are human people. I, like, you shouldn't be treating them this way, but it could be kind of counterproductive in other ways too. So it was, it was hard line when it had to be censored so much, you know? And what we're talking about with having a photographer there, I'm sure the Japanese American, I'm sure they were told, you know, don't look too miserable, right. <laughs> you know? like. Who knows what would happen if they, like, kind of showed more of their true emotions, you know, too. So I just thought about that, too. And uh, she she shows, like, the dust. And she yeah. shows the... There's that great famous image of the American flag in the middle of the mm -hmm. camp and this, this dust storm and people running to get out of the dust mm -hmm. storm. It's like the dust bowl has been transported to Manzanar. Yeah, and the conditions were no good. We did... Um, a section where it was the before, so them getting packing and everything to go to the camps, and then we had the second sec section where they're in the camp. So it was interesting to see both, like, oh, they're packing, like, as if they're going on some vacation. It was not a vacation, you know. Um, she tried to make sure to show the their Americanness with either the famous I'm American <laughs> photo or just. The Pledge of Allegiance with the little kids and everything. I think kids always humanize everything as well. So it was interesting. It was nice to learn about. What were some of your favorite photographs that you that you worked with? Natalie, do you have any favorites? Oh, I'm thinking. <laughs> um, there's one I added to the gender section of, it's an older lady and she's standing out on this porch that's completely decrepit and falling apart. And she has her arms stretched out to the side and she has a quilt draped over it. And you can tell by the home that looks like it's abandoned and that they're staying in that they don't really own anything. But she's so proud of this quilt and I ended up including it because quilts have a long history of being such a huge part of like women's identity. And it was like signs of how good they were at these feminine traits. And so it was such an integral part and she was so proud of it even though her own clothing had like holes and I'm pretty sure was unraveling at the end of the dresses. And I, I forget the quote that goes along with that photo too, but it also had a great statement from her about you just have to keep going. There's no other option. Lang captioned her photos with paragraphs describing <laughs> the situation, right? And sometimes, I mean, when, when a photographer does that, it tells me that they don't entirely trust that the message of the image is going to be is going to register with whomever is dealing with it next right mm -hmm. the editors the agents whatever um, so she's trying to make sure that that's interpreted in a particular way Lewis Hine did the same thing um, and life photographers did too though they knew they weren't going to get to their full captions weren't going to get used Angelica you have any favorite images yeah I think this image that kind of stayed with me was 
this image of these, I think it's like three or four um, young girls and they're like leaning against a car. And I think that they really encapsulated what that section was about. And I think like they had like this, like they were like a, a bridging part to like this old Victorian idea of like women um, and, and expectations in the home to like this new idea post you know this this issue and I remember like um, I think there was like little girls that were dressing in there they had jeans on um, but they still dressed nice but they were so edgy and <laughs> and and they're just edgy and like they were little kids but they had this like essence about them that just seemed innocent around this this you know disaster and I think that I liked seeing that they I just imagined that they were so excited to get (laughs) they got they were excited to get photographed so I think that I really like that image um and I feel like that one you can't I feel like you can't like I don't know what I'm saying but I (laughs) I feel like you can't take it away that they were having fun in this you know time of 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 what is it Hardship. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. Kayla, what about you? My, it's funny because this one doesn't even have any people in it, but and this was the section we pulled from like the before, the when the, the forced removal. It was just a home, and in the window you see a sign that says like kittens for sale or like free kittens. And I don't know why that stuck out to me. I'm like, I maybe just because like oh my god this force removal and they just they can't take their pets with them and it's like and it just seems so mundane like oh freaks oh, we're just getting rid of our cats if you want any like despite like the tragedy of them having to move so i don't know maybe because i'm partial to cats too <laughs> that stood out to me maybe language <laughs> right so i just thought it was interesting it just seems something so mundane but it's just still part of the whole process so but it provokes you to think about mm-hmm. that process and how unfair it is. Yeah. Um, what do you think is important about her photography during this period? What What are some some things that, looking at all of this material and putting it together, what's important about it? We We know that there's an artistic element to many of them, but we're historians too. We like to we like to interpret. We like context. We like we like that. So what do you think is significant about her photography? I think before we were talking about she photographed people, like giving faces to people who are typically unheard. So I think that was important. So, you know, people that might have gone not thought about or you don't really think about the situation they're in by seeing them, you're now forced to see think about it because you're face to face with it so I think that was important yeah Mm -hmm. um I really appreciated how Lang was able to kind of cut at a lot of the underlying issues and themes Mm -hmm. and we turned a lot of those into sections for the exhibit because I really like their photographs of labor Mm -hmm. and especially the agricultural workers and mostly it was people picking fruits and produce and different things but how she's able to show she had this one great caption where she had a picture and it showed different they called them gang laborers but they were different races and she's the caption was all races serve the field and she talks about how like I, I think too often in the present it's easy to kind of gloss over it and not really think about it but she really brings race and issues of gender like you've mentioned into the the present when you look at her photos. You can't ignore it. To a surprising degree, I think, given the time period. Um, And I wonder if her being a woman in a field dominated by men sort of had her thinking about who's been left out of the picture, Mm -hmm. right? Who's been left out. Um, Yeah, those are all good things. Angelica, do you want to weigh in? Um, I guess, like, I agree with both of you. I think Kayla mentioning, like, for Dorothea Lange, this was important of how she became, not became, but how she kind of navigated her world of being a, like a woman photographer. Um, and then um, Natalie's mention of how she 
herself is a missing link in that photography world that she highlights other people. So I think you guys both kind of nailed it. I think, too, about this concept of security and insecurity that I know we talked about, too, in the class. She's capturing people who are not secure, right? They've, they've lost their farm. They are trying to make it as an agricultural laborer in a culture that really despises them if they're uh, not white. Um, they're women trying to be women and trying to be themselves at the same time in the face of hardship and poverty. Um, and then in World War II, we've got a whole group of people that has been made insecure. Their very property has been, you know, taken from them. They are, uh, their freedom has been taken from them mm -hmm. uh, in the name of national security or whatever the, the, the reasons were. Why do you think Lang was, was drawn to these insecure people? Not insecure in terms of how much pride they had or confidence they had because Actually, many of them show a lot of strength and, and confidence, but what is it that's drawing her to those situations, do you think? I think maybe highlighting her background as a portrait photographer, she highlights the best parts, and I think that her switch into... Um, Documentary. documentary yeah like more documentary style images I think she is now highlighting like you said the insecure parts the parts that no one wants to name or to show and I think maybe her just her background kind of has her lean the other way like what like there's so much so much more to human beings and the human experience than just sitting down and showing the perfect parts she looked out her window of her <laughs> portrait studio one day mm -hmm. and she saw the bread line mm -hmm. and that was it. Everything changed. Yeah. It's, a, it's a remarkable moment. What do you think, Natalie? No, I, I definitely agree on that. I think for kind of what you were saying with her beginnings where even though in her photos she would sometimes pose people, it, from the books we learned about how she would sit and wait until she got... The person comfortable and they would relax and get more of the reality behind it. I know that's subjective to say, but um, especially when you compare her to some of the other photographers hired, like Ansel Adams, especially in the Japanese American internment camps, uh, I, I think she does a really good job of getting at kind of the heart of some of these issues. And again, her portrait photography background, what is migrant mother but a portrait, really? Yeah. A portrait of what? We should talk about that photograph because if anybody knows any photo by Dorothea Lange, this is it. It's probably one of the most famous photographs in American history. Um, you'd all seen that beforehand, I'm, I'm certain, even if you weren't sure who had, who had done it. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think it's become such an iconic photograph? Uh, the people listening to this podcast, you know it. It's the, the woman in the midst of the Great Depression with the children over her shoulder, the look of worry and concern on her face. And it's one of only, I think, five photographs taken of, of uh, Florence Thompson, Florence Owens Thompson is her name. Why do you suppose that image still is, is sort of iconic what makes an image iconic? What does it have to do to become iconic? I'm trying to remember the book that I had to read about iconic <laughs> photos. <laughs> I don't know. I think this one, I think is, I feel like this one in particularly maybe is sort of timeless in the sense of like, there, there always has to be mothers if they want people. So she's a mother and like, there's regardless of her situation, there might be some hard times. I know we talked about it's like despite this struggle kind of like she looks like she's maybe struggling a bit but it's like this idea you still have to stay strong for your children and that's a value for women too so I think maybe that's kind of why it's a bit popular I think when looking at the photo she's kind of and also in the other 
set of four besides the main one we all know that got circulated a ton. She's kind of a pillar in it. Mm-hmm. And the children are always clinging on to her. And I think it's really easy to look at and from a quick glance understand the position she's in. It's very easy to relate almost. Mm-hmm. It's written in her face, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I guess looking at the image, what Natalie's saying is like her, like she she is a pillar. Like she is so stagnant while her, she's holding her youngest child and then one of her other children just like leans against her. And I think that just highlights like maybe like the force of what being a woman means in like the family of, and of security. Um, I think that is iconic because that is so relatable to a lot of women, probably more women that aren't highlighted in these images, but that experience the same thing or have experienced some type of hardship um, in their lives. For the children, she's their security. Yeah. Even though she herself is clearly insecure, mm-hmm. right? She's, she's not in a good situation. I wonder, too, if just the long, long history of the Madonna and Child, mm-hmm. right? The depictions of, of Mary, depictions of that child you know, Christ and his mother relationship was just pervasive through the history of Western art, right? I wonder if there's some echo of that. Only we're not at the Annunciation here. We're not at the Nativity, rather. We're at, uh, we're in the midst of the Great Depression in California by the side of the road, mm-hmm. right? With these impoverished people who are becoming a stand-in for a nationwide crisis, right? I think somehow the image has to meet the moment just right in order to work, doesn't it? Yeah, I I think maybe expanding on that, like, Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of, like, what do we, we call America, her. Mm -hmm. Um, So, like, I'm, like, I guess in this time, like, she kind of encapsulates America during this time. Maybe we can even call her that. Um, I really like that. I never thought about that. Why didn't you bring that in the class? We should put that in the labels. Put that in the class. (laughs) What do you hope visitors will take away from the exhibition? Obviously, we want them to see these extraordinary photographs that you all chose. But what do you hope they take away, Natalie? You've done a lot of work on the show. Um, I think... Personally, what I really hope people take away from it after they go through everything is also how a lot of these lessons that she's trying to get people to notice back then was was look at these issues, look at these, um, not discrepancies, but that people are struggling and going through. So you can still see this in the president. It doesn't take a black and white photo, but you should still be looking around and seeing in your community that there's issues. And, like, you can kind of, or you can't kind of, you can apply these lessons that she tried to, or she may not have been trying to, um, pass on in the present. Yeah, I think she wants us to be more empathetic, doesn't Mm -hmm. she? And surely there are many, many people in need of that understanding and a little bit of empathy in our culture today. What do you think, Angelica? I, I guess, you know, the little staunch hater in me I guess <laughs> something other than migrant mother um, I I think I hope that they realize the impact of America as an imperial country especially um, the experience of Japanese Americans like I didn't learn about Japanese Americans until college and what was that that was 20. 13 I started so I that's I feel like that's a long time from when it happened for me to have never known the atrocities that America has created especially on the home front and to and I hope that that it we have like more of a understanding of of America yeah as as an imperial force Lindy Gordon talks about 
uh, Lang was a photographer of democracy. She believed in democracy, equity, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's certainly something to ponder today. But you, Kayla? I think to carry off what you said, you know, piggyback off of that, um, I think it would be neat if they could see, I guess, some of the, I guess, realities of Californian history where like granted while some of these photos may be slightly staged it's these are still real places and these are still real things that have happened and everything so I think that would be interesting for them especially since they're all photos like they're not paintings or anything I think it's significant that they're photos so they could see like oh my god this was whenever I see photos I'm like that was a real person so I don't know maybe that I don't know if other people think that, like, that person was alive and going through this at this time. So it'd be cool if other people thought that way <laughs> and, and think about that aspect. And with the imperial aspect, I think, and democracy, how Dorothea Lange was, I think, trying to show, like, you know, our government was failing us, and that could still tie in how we still could. I shouldn't say that. <laughs> you know, say what you need to say. <laughs> you know, we still have, like you said, we still have issues, and you know, it's just something to think about to this day. Like we don't hate America, <laughs> right? But you know, <laughs> just uh, just just talk about it once in a while. <laughs> yeah, you know. I think she does that with her photos, though. Of you can't change anything if you don't address it. You can't just ignore it. And mm -hmm. I think her photos are some of those steps in the right direction. Mm-hmm. FDR himself said a Sioux nation under, underfed, underhoused, etc. Um, and he said that because he thought something needed to be done about it, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Part of what was done about it was the Resettlement Administration, the Farm Security Administration, and the photographs that Lang took. And then, of course, FDR signs the order that puts Japanese Americans... <laughs> behind barbed wire in World War II in the name of national security. Um, so it's, it's complex. It's a complex legacy, and she documented it in the 30s and 40s in California. I want to thank all three of you, Kayla Ratliff and Angelica Smith and Natalie Vandercook, who's done a lot of work on this show. It's called Dorothy Lang's California, 1935 to 42. It's at the Great Park Gallery in Irvine at the Great Park, and it's October the 1st through the end of the year, and they're open on Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays. Check it out. It's a production of the Great Park, City of Irvine, and the DeGroff Center for Oral and Public History. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. And now, our Out of the Archives segment with Natalie Garcia. Hello, my name is Natalie Navarre-Garcia, and I'm the archivist for the Lawrence DeGraff Center for Oral and Public History. This part of Outspoken is called Out of the Archives. This section is where I highlight oral histories and other findings from our other projects. In this episode of Out of the Archives, we will be listening to excerpts from oral histories in our personal and family, Orange County Pioneers, and Japanese American collections. In these clips, narrators describe their experience of the Great Depression and of being incarcerated at the Manzanar concentration camp. Both subjects are highlighted in the exhibition, Dorothea Lang's California, 1935 to 1942, on view at the Great Park Gallery in Irvine from October 1st through December 31st. This first clip comes from our personal and family collection. Here, James McDougall, who was a teenager living in Kansas during the time of the Great Depression, talks about how the Depression hurt local farmers and how that ultimately affected the success of his father's dry goods store. He had this grocery store and dry goods store, and people in those days uh, came in, ordered their groceries, and uh, would charge by the month. And at the end of the month, why they would come in and pay the town people, but the farm people would come in and pay once a year, so they'd charge groceries uh, for a whole year. And if they had a crop, they'd come in and pay their bill off. If they didn't have a good crop, they wouldn't pay their bill until the next year. So he had some tremendous uh, bills outstanding. Well, the mercantile people who he bought his groceries from, they didn't operate that way. They had to have their money at the end of every month. So when 1932 came along, he was in a position where he could not pay the mercantile people 
and uh, had to uh, relinquish the whole store. And the way they did this, they moved all the dry goods out on the sidewalk and had a what you'd call now an auction sale. And the auctioneer stood up there and said, well, I have uh, two pairs of shoes here, and uh, what am I bid? And uh, people would bid maybe a nickel or a dime and buy the shoes, or 15 or 20 cents and buy four bolts of uh, dry goods. And this way, he sold out the store. When he, when he was completely sold out, he still owed the mercantile people many, many thousands of dollars. And uh, it took him about 20 years to pay these people off, but he finally did. He paid every one of them off. And he paid him off working at, on the highway, driving a truck for $75 a month for uh, quite some number of years. And uh, many of those people, the farmers and the business people in town, still owe him thousands of dollars that they've never paid him. The next two clips come from our Orange County Pioneers collection. First, you will hear lifelong Orange County resident Shirley Shaver talk about crops in Huntington Beach and how they became a resource for people during the Depression. Off of the bluff were the bean fields, and uh, very big. And I, that brings me off the subject a little bit. I remember during the Depression when I was a little girl, the people used to go out to the bean fields to find the beans that were left after the harvesters had taken the crops away in order to have enough to eat. Because when I was a little girl, during the Depression, many of my friends' fathers were out of work and very, very poor. And my father was with Standard Oil, and that was a safe place to be, fortunately. Next, listen to Helen Easterly, another Orange County resident, talk about the struggle to get enough to eat during the Depression. Easterly was sheltered from the effects of the Depression while living with her parents, but all that changed when she was married and began living on her own. Got awfully hungry there for a while. I was used to all the food at home, and we didn't have much money to buy too much food. And uh, we lived on black-eyed peas and fried potatoes. I liked the potatoes all right, but I didn't like the peas very well, and I still don't. <laughs> I go down to my mother-in-law's, and she—they were hard up too, but she all. She loved to make these fruit cobblers, and I'd go down there, and uh, I could sit down and eat the whole thing, and she just let me eat all I wanted. <laughs> but I guess she felt sorry for me. <laughs> so, but things started getting better after you went to work for the telephone company. Of course, in those days, you could buy a big sack of groceries for $5, with all you could carry home. If you had ten dollars to spend on groceries, you could hardly carry them all. You could get a lot for your money, but then if you didn't have the money, it wasn't so good either. So all levels out, I guess. The next two clips are from our Japanese American oral history collection. In this following clip, Psycho Ishida recalls the buses that came to pick up her family and take them to Manzanar, and her first experience of the camp. How did you get relocated? Where did they pick you up? And how did you travel? Oh, in, uh, see, we moved to um, uh, San Fernando. So they had buses pick us up. I can't remember where. I, I'm not too familiar with San Fernando. But my uh, brother's wife is from there. That's why we moved. Oh, so you lived with them, huh? And so we went to move in on them so we could move together. I see, as a family group. Mm -hmm. And when you did go, you went by bus to Manzanar? Mm -hmm. And when you arrived at Manzanar, uh, you recall something of your mm -hmm. feelings at that time? Do you like to describe those? Uh, it's a real windy day. Oh, it felt very saddening to be going there with just enough for yourself, one suitcase, and, you know, they didn't allow us to take a lot of extra things and issue this uh, mattress with, filled with straw on a 
to sleep on the couch, you know. And uh, meals, we line up pork and beans. It was sure discouraging. <laughs> but it didn't matter to us much, you know. But uh, Who do you mean, us? Do you mean you and your family, or the Japanese-Americans yeah. as a whole? or No, uh, adults. But with families, with children and babies, they'd have no provision for them, you know. So the adults didn't mind it as much as yeah, people so, with families, right? Uh, they had to... Uh, fulfill the needs as they came and it took time, you know. Eventually they did provide uh, dietitian for the babies and so forth. In our last clip, Sue Embry discusses the divisions at Manzanar which stemmed from regional and cultural differences between the different Japanese American groups. This was especially apparent between the people from Bainbridge Island in Washington and the people from Terminal Island in San Pedro due to the difference in their lifestyles. Did you find out that there was within the camp then uh, pretty clear cultural divisions within the subculture? Yeah, I uh, yeah I found that uh, you know after I started doing a lot of reading and, and then talking to people too, and then my own, own observations of people that I saw in Manzanar, uh, I had you know been pretty much uh, within Little Tokyo. I didn't get out very much as a kid and. Uh, I was very curious about the different groups in Manzanar, and, and, uh, and I guess working on the paper made me a little more aware, too, uh, of some of the, the thinking of the people. And uh, so when I look back on it, I can see where the Bainbridge Islanders would have a lot of problems with the San Pedro people uh, because of their difference in cultural outlook. Into traumatic differences. Yeah, and, and I think that. Uh, probably this was one of the most tragic things of the evacuation was you don't put a group of people in together just because they're of one you know, race because each depending on where they come from has a very different lifestyle and uh, I think that in Manzanar the, the, the biggest one was between Bainbridge Island and San Pedro and even San Pedro from the lo rest of Los Angeles <laughs> people were so different you know, and, and my mother said, I, when I asked her at one time, she says, well, even in Japan, fishermen, people who deal in fishing are considered a completely, entirely different group from the Japanese. They're rough, they have to have a lot of courage, and they're fighting the seas all the time. You know, their living is very precarious, and their attitude becomes quite different from the attitude of people who work the land. I hope you enjoyed these clips. If anyone is interested in any of these oral histories, you can come on by to cough and either I or one of my coworkers will help you. Along with these interviews, we have over 6,000 oral histories in our collection. Go to our website at cough.fullerton.edu to research more. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I hope to see you soon, and thank you for listening to Out of the Archives. Thanks for listening to Outspoken, the podcast of the Lawrence DeGroff Center for Oral and Public History at California State University, Fullerton. For archivist Natalie Garcia and producer Carrie Markin, this is Benjamin Cothrop. Until next time. <laughs>